Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And on this week's show, Jasmine will be joined by poet and artist Linnea Rischke, who will be discussing, among many other things, her new book, Kindling, from Lantern Publishing and Media. This was kind of an extraordinary interview, wasn't it? It was a very unusual situation. Yeah, absolutely. I always enjoy speaking with artists of various mediums, and Linnea is actually an artist of various mediums, which we get into on the interview, and clearly just a deeply sensitive soul, extremely thoughtful and insightful about animal rights issues and how it collides with art and when it should, for lack of a better word, which I think is a complex question. When is it art and when is it something else entirely? I'm always glad when you do the artsy interviews because I'm not very good at them. I'm such a literal person. It's a good thing I became a lawyer. I'm very glad when you do the super brainy interviews because I'm- I don't know about that. Yeah, but- I'm always a little intimidated by them. Anyway, I think people are going to really enjoy my conversation with Linnea. I actually had that thing happen where I forgot I was interviewing her and I thought we were just talking because- There's just a lot of layers there, and I enjoyed peeling back a few with her. Were you wondering while you were sitting at your desk with your microphone in front of you? Okay, okay. Yeah, I get get it. So I just got back from international travel. (laughs) Yes, you did. You you went to another country primarily to go to Ikea. Accurate. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) I went to Canada, which is two hours away. And actually, I went primarily to go to the Dyke March, which is the day before Pride customarily. And it is inherently a protest. And, and this was I think in, I talked in about Toronto. it recently. In Toronto. Yeah, in Toronto. Yeah. And there was so much energy and it felt very much like a protest. But even though it was in Canada, it was really a protest against what's going on in the United States right now. And I needed that personally. I think everyone around me needed that kind of energy and it felt very revolutionary. I was really grateful to not be the only one who was so angry that I could explode So, and I went to Ikea, (laughs) Um, (laughs) but at Ikea, not only did I get like a backyard set, like a table and patio paver thingies, but also I got vegan soft serve, which is available at the Ikea in Canada, but not here. That's definitely worth international travel for vegan soft serve. Thank you. I'm glad you see me. I'm glad we are on the same page. So it was a giant relief the second I got into Canada because of how enraged I am and how how enraged so many of us are. And I know that everyone else around me was also very enraged. It's hard to talk about this knowing that things are changing sort of on the day to day. So I don't want to get too much into the specific issues of what's going on in the US. I don't want to get too much into it anyway, because we'll just go off on a huge tangent. And and it's all anybody's thinking about these days anyway. So yeah. Right. Well, I will say I do find hope in what you have said a million times, even if I don't always believe it, which is that as animal activists, we are used to being super angry and knowing about the hell. I'm not sure that's hopeful. (laughs) 
I found it. Hey, don't depressing. Actually, don't take away my hope. This is we've always been hopeless, so this isn't that bad. No, it's hopeful. Okay, my point is that I can deal with this. I got this. I can. I'm angry, and that's okay. I don't have to solve the anger. I can just be angry. Then I can do something about it because it's in my muscle memory to be an activist, and so I will activist. Well, it is a really good idea for everybody to start flexing their activist muscles because things are some crazy stuff is going on in this world. And I doubt it's going to stop anytime soon. Yeah. Can we just talk about vulnerability for just a second? Because it's funny because I think a lot of activists or advocates or whatever you call yourself inherently have to put ourselves in situations where we are vulnerable when we stand up for anything. And it used to be, I feel like the stakes didn't always get this high. Like sometimes we would talk about something that we cared deeply about and maybe we were met with curiosity a little bit more, but now it's just hostility. Like everyone is so hostile, at least in the US. And maybe, maybe this is just my perspective. Are you feeling that way too? Or no, no? I'm of course I'm feeling I mean I think everybody's feeling that way. I don't deal with it that much because I'm not on social media that much. And we have our our hen house family and we're mostly kind of on the same page about at least about important things. So I'm not sure I deal with the hostility, but of course I'm aware of it. I mean, who isn't? It's crazy. It's just crazy Mm -hmm. what's going on. Yeah, I completely agree. It's also the 4th of July is coming up in the United States, Independence Day. It's complicated, right? Because it's It reminds me a little bit of what was going on during Thanksgiving when we were talking about, well, do we celebrate it or do we do we assimilate and create the vegan version of it or do we boycott it because it's rooted in such bullshit? I feel like, you know, not a whole lot of country pride, right, which is the biggest understatement in the world. I'm like, I don't think that can be the I mean, that's what they sell us, that you have to be patriotic in the sense that, yeah, you have to love America. You have to think everything about America is great. It is, but I don't think it's a good idea to just throw out the holidays. I think you have to use them and transform them to your own purposes. And you can still love your home. It's I always liken it like you love your country kind of like your mother, though at the moment we have to assume you had a really, really bad mother because things are bad <laughs> right now. But you might still love her. There's an attachment and you have to, everybody's going to get mad at me. I'm nervous about saying anything, but I think you have to find ways. This year, it doesn't have to be a celebration, but it, you have to mark holidays. I really believe in that because they're they're kind of like the markers of your year and, and time to remember important things. And sometimes mm-hmm. those things can be a celebration. Sometimes they need to be maybe something a little else. And one of the things, and we've been talking a lot about rituals of late, and you actually did a ritual for summer solstice, which we can talk about in a moment. But I think that it's a really good idea heading into the fourth, which is coming up soon. And sorry for the rest of you who, who aren't in the States, but you probably have your own days that you have issues with. But heading into the fourth, just think more seriously than one usually does about how to market and how what would be some good rituals to practice that would make it feel right? Right. I was going to say make it feel okay, but it won't necessarily feel okay, but it would feel right for the circumstances. So that's how I feel about it. Yeah, I like that. We're used to doing that as vegans in in a way because we're turning our celebrations 
into the vegan versions of them. And many of us find a lot of joy in that and a lot of joy in the, in the community that we can share that with around various holidays. And I love the idea of ritual, as you know, you're right. We did do a summer solstice ritual recently on summer solstice. In fact, good timing. Yeah. Brilliant. I know. I thought, I thought so too. It was really beautiful. I'm not terribly woo, but I can opt in to being woo. And I just thought it was powerful. And all it was, was like a circle of us together, throwing out there what we want, supporting each other. Like we all felt very elevated, I think, very clarified. Very close too. Close to each other, because all of a sudden, instead of just small talk, you actually start talking about things that really matter to you. And it doesn't have to be on solstice. You know, I loved the sort of magical element of solstice and also just celebrating the longest day of the year felt like a real celebration of Mother Earth, the mother that I love very much. I mean, I love my mommy too, mom, if you're listening to this, but (laughs) she'll probably be like, why don't you love me as much as you love Mother Earth? Yeah, she'll really be thrilled when you do that, do her with that accent. Totally. Which she does not Uh, have, I want to add. And by the way, I am going to Vermont to visit her this weekend. So I might have stories next week as well when we're recording to let you know. And I do want to go back to Toronto for one second to say that I ate at Planta Cochina, which there are several plantas around Toronto. And this is the Mexican take on it. And it was like friggin' phenomenal. It's like a chain, but each one is different. A different concept, yes. Chicago used to have something like that. I wonder if they still do. Do you remember that? I do. Yes, I do remember that. The same owner Mm -hmm. and there were links between them, but they were different. One was very high end and yeah. Yes, I do remember that. Well, Toronto has, we all know, we all know Toronto has great (laughs) vegan food. Everything's vegan. The vegans are everywhere. Yes. Yeah, it was delicious. I didn't go. In case you're wondering at my tone, I wasn't there. I'm going to go soon. I just wasn't the right moment. And I invited you. I just want to be clear. But thank you for taking care of the dogs and the cat while we were gone. We had fun. I heard all about it. So back to ritual. I think you're right. We need community right now. I mean, we've talked a lot about how we need to be taking good care of ourselves and one another. Step that up, folks. Step that up. And if you want to do it, having the excuse of the 4th of July, do it. If you want to do it, having the excuse that you have that day off of work, if you have that day off of work, do it. If you want to just do it on a Tuesday and be like, yo, let's all get together. You could just get some vegan cheese and either wine or alcohol-free wine or, or whatever, what have you. Have people come over. <laughs> You're really providing all of the suggestions here. You could get alcoholic wine. You could get alcohol. You could get beer, or you could get alcohol-free beer, or you could get seltzer, or you could get, or, or you could get actually sugar soda, soda with sugar in it. Not something I drink. Seltzer without bubbles. Bubble-free, <laughs> otherwise known as water. Water. <laughs> Lots of options available. There are a bunch of different things you can do for a holiday, and you don't have to do it on the holiday, but. In my mind, it makes sense to do it actually on the holiday. Jasmine likes to do it on Tuesday instead of Monday, but whatever. And I think foods are really easy for vegans on the 4th of July. All of the foods, you can have the, just the classics. You can have hamburgers, hot dogs, watermelon, corn on the cob. All right, that's easy. One of the things I really like, and a lot of people do this on New Year's Eve, but I see no reason not to do it on the 4th of July, and you could make it particularly themed, is a donation. 
Like think of a donation that you think will really help the country move forward, whether it's to abortion services or to something or, you know, an animal cause or whatever. But but think of it specifically in a love of country sense, something that would help the country be better than it is right now. That's a nice idea for a ritual. And you could also, if you, if you really want to get woo, and I know you mentioned a moment ago that you, you do like to get woo a little bit. You could do okay. a, spe- a special reading that means something to you. You could read like what the Constitution actually says as opposed to what the Supreme Court seems to think it says right now or whatever. There could be a game. You really like games. I hate them, but maybe just something traditional like horseshoes, like to bring back olden days. I don't know. I'm talking through my hat. Somebody told me the other day that they had no, they'd never heard that expression, which when I thought about it, they must have thought I was crazy because <laughs> what would that mean? But it does mean I'm just making it up. But I just like the idea of, I think we should take it a little bit more seriously this year, but I don't think we should skip it. Yeah, I love all of that. And I, I think even just in general, if you're feeling despair, if you're feeling sad, if you're feeling angry, A, feel it. B, think to yourself, what can I do to make a difference right now? And even if it's tiny, we're used to this as vegans, right? Share a cupcake recipe, vegan cupcake. Even if it's tiny, just do something. I think you'll feel a little better. Just try it. And even if you don't feel a little better, you have helped someone else. So that should probably make you feel a little better anyway. All right. Well, there, there's just so much going on in the world. And we're, I'm here for you. If you are in the flock, be sure to set up a one-on-one with me. We can talk it through and I can either problem solve with you or I can just sit there and listen. I am told just sometimes that I problem solve too much, like not by people in the flock so much because gen- hopefully generally they want that. But people in my life personally tell me that occasionally that yeah, like I... That's, you can be a little bit too much of a problem solver and not just yeah. a passive listener on occasion, but sometimes it's nice to have suggestions too. You know what we should do about that? I'm just kidding. Okay. (laughs) Let's get to the interview. It's complex when we interview an artist of any kind because we're talking to them about their art. I do encourage you to read Linnea's work and see Linnea's art. She does do some readings for us today, which I was super excited that she did that. They're very beautiful and harrowing at the same time. You're going to feel a lot of stuff, but that can be very cathartic. And and I do think from a more meta level, it is interesting to talk about art because you can kind of gauge how much it changes the world for animals and in what ways, because, you know, it's complicated, right? Like at what point is it art? And at what point is it activism? And for some artists, at what point is it exploitative? It's it's a fascinating conversation, I think. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Linnea Rischke creates paintings, drawings, artist books, installations, and poetry that seek to restore the value of non-human animals as kindred beings worthy of our adoration, respect, and empathy. Her work has been exhibited nationally, and she released her first book, Kindling, with Lantern Publishing and Media in the fall of 2021. Before we get to the interview to provide some context, I would just like to read a bit from a review by Julia Schlosser, who is a lecturer in the art department at California State University, Northridge, and the curator at rememberinganimals.art. This is from Julia. 
In her unique volume, Kindling, artist, animal activist, and ethnographer Linnea Rischke uses observational research to skillfully construct an empathetic space within which readers encounter animals who are essentially invisible in our culture, those raised for food. Rischke was involved in the daily care of the animals up until their deaths. Through her poetry, she traces the path of her emotions, her attempts to make empathetic connections, and her own burnout and aversion as she exhausts her reservoirs of compassion navigating the inevitable path with these animals. Rischke's fearless willingness to turn toward death rather than away from it, her inclination to employ curiosity when confronted by ideologies so different from her own, and her attempts to establish a bridge of compassion with beings whose life experience she was powerless to change, all make this beautiful book a valuable companion for facing the challenges of our own provocative and demanding times. Blending art and ethnographic research, Kindling is an ideal addition to the animal studies, critical animal studies, art, literature, or ethics classroom. Linnea Rischke will be joining Jasmine right after this. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Welcome to our hen house, Linnea. Hello. <laughs> I'm excited to talk to you. I was telling you before that I think my favorite interviews are with creative types and with artists and poets and writers and you are a poet and many other things too. So welcome, welcome, welcome. I can't wait to talk about your book, Kindling, which is based in your time working at an organic meat farm. Wow. So how did that come about? And what did you hope to learn from the experience? So I, I've i been vegan for quite a time and an artist since I was two. <laughs> so the intersection of art and my passion for animal advocacy has been sort of a center of my life for a time, but I, there came a point where I felt like I needed more of an embodied experience to not only, I mean, I had been drawing hens and cows and pigs for so long that it was, I've never really met them before. Um, besides those field trips that you take when you're in elementary school, that kind of a thing. But I had this, like, what would it be like to be in that kind of situation with them. So my intention was actually to go to a sanctuary. That was my first thought. But I just through various circumstances ended up at this farm and without really knowing what I was going to encounter. So my intention was to be as as open and as porous to the experience as much as possible. So I didn't I, I knew it was going to be un- uncomfortable, but I didn't quite know to what extent. So that happened in 2019, which the book came came from, but it's it's been like a really pivotal point that has changed my art practice since then. So Wow. So what was it like there? Like what was your day-to-day life like if you're if you're okay sharing that? 
so the the poems themselves kind of narrate the experience from kind of the the quote unquote mundane encounters and actions during the day. So basically, I was there as kind of like a work stay situation. So I fed and gave water to the animals in the morning, and so yeah, you know, yeah, that that took up the morning, and then the afternoon would be more specific sort of tasks, but that kind of act of care for animals who were to be ultimately killed was that that was the crux of what was so discomforting for me. And so that those, that repetition of task and of care um, kind of centered the experience. Well, you have spoken about the psychological tension between empathy and apathy and care and harm that is present in these poems. Can you explain that? So the unintended point of this book was to be as honest as possible. So I didn't intend on any of this to come up, but what happened in doing that kind of those tasks was the way in which I became culpable and complicit in the system itself. So of course it was the system being not at all the context of a factory farm situation, but of a single family small farm that you know we associate with those of course those images of I- idyllic kind of situations so the embodied experience of care that easily flipped into harm in the way in which like I talk about that in the poems of when animals would try to escape and I would try to get them back in the cage that I would hurt them or it was so interesting to me how the stress of the situation even though you know, they, they weren't in those tiny battery cage situations, of course, but they were still very stressed because they had no control. And and that stress, partly through empathy and partly just in being the role of the worker, kind of became in my own actions, like kind of drove my own actions, which was very uncomfortable for me. So that 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 I tried to be as honest about that in the book, just to also hopefully be a lens with which because I think there can be this sense of like higher than thou of course in 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 veganism and I really wanted to be like this is this was my honest and genuine response and it was horrible and I and I hated myself for it you know but I think that was important to be honest about Mm. Wow. There's a lot there. I have so many more questions but I'm wondering if you would mind sharing one or two of your poems before we go further into the questions. Yeah, let's see. I'm going to read the the poem called Foreign Matter. So it's related to what I was just speaking about. So I'll go ahead. So one, turned around, saw I failed to secure the latch. Four young ducks leapt out my heart, pulsed to the rapid beating of their wings, my hands reached far from my body to enclose them in a grip lighter than a chokehold, harder than a caress. My palms singed as if with an abscess swelling, white blood cells struggling to remember tenderness. Oh, wow. That's, there's a lot. Did you want to continue to the next? 
Yeah, well, I'll I'll just I'm just gonna read the so that the the poem has four parts. Yeah, I'll read the last part as well. Being so four, it happened slowly when I closed the door on a wing, when my foot shoved one back in, when I pinned one to the ground, laying the water dish down, when I recoiled at their open mouths, when my lips lapped up fish soup. When my tongue remembered the ease of swallowing strips of a stranger's body, the foreign matter became my own. So I talk about the earlier poem, Foreign Matter. I had this like allergic reaction. So that was sort of what that was related to, but just how all of this became my embody, like I, yeah, my, my body and my actions became part of it. So, wow. Yeah. There are a lot of things I'm feeling listening to that. I just closed my eyes and took it in and I could see it and I feel like I could smell it. And that is really very, I want to say beautiful, but also just really tragic. And I cannot imagine what that was like for you to be there. I mean, I have so many questions. How did you feel about the people at the farm? It's really interesting to me because I've also, since being at the farm, been at other situations where the animal is exploited and I am using, or I'm connecting with the humans that are doing that work. And they're nice people. The people at the farm, they were very kind to me and are nice people, you know? So it's, so it's interesting. Like I had no, although this, this work, I would not call it undercover work at all because it wasn't, my intention wasn't necessarily to pinpoint them and say, you are doing wrong, you specifically, this farm, but it's more just like the, how do we understand that conflict between this environment that necessitates a kind of violence and yet people who love their dog very much and, you know, have children that they care for. And, you know, it's like, how do we reconcile all of these tensions that I have within me too? So I very much... Yeah, that, that was a conflict for sure. Uh, yeah, I would imagine that there was a lot of dichotomies going on for you. I feel it in just those poems. You've spoken of the ethics of making an image, i.e. the process of being like as important in making the work as the final art piece itself. Can you explain that? Yeah, so I have various sort of examples of that. But for me, it's like, there are a lot of artists who who work with animals in their subject matter. And I think there's a spectrum of whether it's respectful and not. And, and for me, because I feel so much sensitivity towards the animals that I'm representing, that I want to be as considerate in the process of doing so. So for instance, I guess this is this is separate from the book, but just the, the example that came to mind. So I did this series of works going to the zoo, a, a zoo near my home for every weekend for a year and a half. And I, I was always aware of not wanting to take images of the animals because that was part of the way in which I felt they were exploited and also to draw them in a way that they themselves were either showing or not showing themselves. So for instance, I have this painting of a, of a gorilla with his back to, to the viewer, because that was the way in which he showed himself to me. And so that, I guess that's an example of 
which I can go into more specific details, maybe with other pieces. But I also, a lot of my work involves ritual or some sort of like repetition. So the, it might just be an image, but there's kind of a process with which that image was made. So one work that's mentioned in the book, the the book is sort of set up as sort of poetry and photography in the first part and the second part being kind of an artist statement of sorts and images of works. So one of the works that is shown is called Remains and it's a drawing that I made of drawing an individual hen for 47 days, 47 days being at that point in 2018, the kind of average lifespan of a broiler hen. And so I did this kind of ritual of drawing this hen every day over the same panel of the same surface. And I sort of did the drawing and covered the surface over with a layer of like thin paint and sanded the surface down. And I I collected kind of this the dust from sanding and made this urn for the kind of metaphorical ash in a way to go along with the painting. But I what was so interesting to me in doing that work was that, you know, we think 47 days, like wow, that's, you know, I mean, it's a minuscule amount compared to what a healthy lifespan would be. But it felt when I was doing it, it's like, wow, this feels it's like such a long time to endure what I know they endure. So I didn't, in, in physically feeling that and doing the work, I didn't really, hadn't considered that quite the same way and, and kind of, kind of witnessing it through imagination. Mm. But I, yeah, so wow, <laughs> things like that. Yeah. Wow. That's what an amazing idea too, to, with the sort of dust and just sort of letting it represent the body of this being. These poems are obviously full of pain. Can you talk about the importance of holding grief and discomfort in your work? That's become kind of a guiding principle for me is wherever the discomfort lies, like go there and not for the sake of some kind of like endurance, you know, principle, but more just like, I think we know that in our own personal lives and it's like wherever the tension is, wherever we don't, we, there's like a standstill or a paralysis or something two things or multiple things are coming together and they there's this tension between them. Like I think that there can be heat there and there can be generative energy towards something else. And I like sometimes like what, what could that be? But I tends to be like, (laughs) at the farm, like he told me, he said, you know, I'm slaughtering today. Like, do you want to, he like asked me if I wanted to participate. I didn't do anything, but he asked me if I wanted to, see and I was like no but I but I should you know no but I will you know so I mean this whole time at the farm was like I don't want to be here but I need to be here and so I have done that in other circumstances since partly to I feel like the work has been more honest but I also think that I'm trying to embody that because I think as a whole as a society, we need to know how to navigate those spaces of discomfort more. I would love to hear another one or two, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. So yeah, related to what we were just saying of discomfort. So this poem is called Normal. 
every morning, every morning I knew, I knew to look for dead bodies in cages, rabbit lying stuck stiff as a plastic doll, chick drowned in her water bowl, quail flattened with upturned feet, young duck furred with her first feathers, chick matted down in the wood chips. I told myself no shovel or glove. I told myself my skin must meet theirs. I told myself reach in and reach out toward the stillness of their bodies that sent shocks up my arms. <sighs> wow. Uh, is there more context about that one that you want to share? Well, you know, it's, you know, d- death is very normal at a farm. So, you know, a lot of times the, those bodies are taken away quickly or yeah, just like use a shovel or glove to take them out. But I, I just, I like, I, when I could, I wanted to be as present to that individual as possible. And like, if that, you know, I mean, I, I, but most of us have had that experience of like a dead body. Like there's so much like you don't want, like there, you know, there's something physical going on. Like I don't want to touch it, but and like that stillness is so anyway, it's just, ah, yeah, it's really, it's very hard. So for me, it's, it's the pain and the suffering is so important to feel empathetically. And at the same time, like I have this poem called touch and the last two poems are kind of about that the empathy that is also of their joy and their connectedness with one another so i think you know what you were saying like beauty and pain like i you know we are, i for me like my art that's where th- that resonance is is like this strange overlap that can happen between the two that's almost irreconcilable and i think has to do with you know, mortality and, and that's shared mortality with other beings. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. You have said that through image making, I do not intend to capture the animal subject, but tactily feel my way toward them and evoke their elusive presence. Can you explain that process in the context of a specific example? Yeah, so that language is oftentimes used in in photography uh, so much as like capturing an image and but I do think that quality is very much within painting too if you see of paintings of of animals, you know, from still lives and things like that. It's like these hyper-rendered photorealist kind of paintings which basically the animal is used as a as a, as a learning tool or as like, I can, I can paint this, this kind of like mastery through skill. And so through the quality of the image. So a lot of times the images of animals that I paint or draw are, are like barely there. There's kind of like this ephemeralness or this like appearing and disappearing simultaneously. So they're rarely like stilled and, and single and, and, kind of captured in that way just because I think that that way in which like matter and spirit are kind of intertwined of like kind of having that be the feeling of the painting rather than this kind of like objectness of the animal. Mm. Mm -hmm. I have some more specific questions but first taking a big step back 
What do you feel is the role of art and art making in animal advocacy? It has such a diverse range, I think. So for me, I don't necessarily consider myself or my work is like activist artwork, though I think that's very necessary. So I think from the spectrum of like images and graphics to more kind of gallery work, I I guess you could say. So there's such a spectrum. I guess that's visual art. Of course, that's not including dance and song and, and all of that. But I think in general, art at its best has this capacity to bypass logic and reason and rational thinking which is so dominant to touch us in the most tender part of our of our being and I hope for that with my work you know I I aspire to that and I think art at its best does that and I think that's so necessary more than ever in these times to be able to access that part of ourselves and you know one thing I love about art so much is that of course, it's sold as a commodity and uh, there's big art, mar- art market. But at the same time, like I, it's so non-utilitarian. It's so unnecessary. It's, of course, there's craft that's used for a purpose, but it's just like it's an image that you see or it's a painting that you see. There's no real function to it. And yet at the same time, we know during times of obviously now during times of war, during times of turmoil and unrest like art is so necessary so it has this this sort of duality of being excess but also so vital for our own spiritual endurance and Hmm. I could not have I've never heard a better answer to that question I could never have articulated it that way but all of that resonates deeply with me why do you resist the term activist art to describe your work? I guess it's not that I resist it necessarily. It's just I like I I definitely am an activist myself as a person, but I think my is most mostly because I think of like when I think of that term, I think of like this kind of like forward moving, definitive, very strong forced kind of will. And though I feel that very much, I think my art is more like as it's becoming more so. And again, I don't know if I have it right, (laughs) but this kind of quiet reflective space of like stilled space. And I've tried a lot of tactics of more straightforward, a lot more like kind of illustrative in a sense um, images. And I think those have for sure a role but the responses in my art that I've gotten that when they when the images are more like that, people tend to get more defensive. And if they're if they're a little bit more open and subtle, it, there's like this this they kind of haunt people a little more. So I don't mean to resist that term. I just think that my art functions a little bit differently. And at the same time, I must assume that you want to have these poems read not just by animal rights vegans, but by people who might be led to think about animals in a new way because of them. How does that come about? I am figuring that out. You know, it's like the big questions. It is the big questions. I mean, in some ways, that is the the potential of art that I think is great. Is that a lot of people who come to art spaces 
are uh, the widest mix of people, uh, hopefully, you know, I mean, it, it can be an elitist group, but in the kind of spaces that I'm interested in, it's a diverse range of people who oftentimes are not vegan. And, and that's many times people who see my work are not vegan, but I, I, you know, I, I've gotten that so many times. It's like, Oh, so, so you want me to be vegan now? You know, people <laughs> will say that it's like, I mean, yeah, but not that. I don't mean that like to say that's, that's not, that is my goal. But at the same time, it's like, I actually do believe that more and more as I keep making work is that, Yes, that is what I want, but at the same time, it, it translates to an even broader way of being in the world that can't help but happen to be vegan, but it's like, how else do I live differently? Right. And you've said that, and I'm quoting you, connection, the kind that nourishes the marrow, does not know the bounds of species. I do not risk hyperbole to say that all humans know this truth. I think that most of our listeners understand that sense of connection very well and perhaps include it among the fundamental joys of their life. So another big question for you, how do so many humans manage to forget it so completely? I think it's it's almost for me less of a forgetting. It's just this like strange morphing that that like we all have that core, but it just it just turns and kind of becomes this strange monster of something else. Like I even just experienced that recently that something that came from a love for this individual, it just turned to like, how does that possibly look like love to you? You know? So I think, but at the same time, you know, I have these instances where, you know, I'll see someone at this, you know, with me, like if I'm on a walk, you know, kind of, being curious about the same bird that I am, or I feel like I have those moments where it's clear that people, I I really do believe that, that people have this core capacity and, and curiosity and kindness towards other creatures. It's just, it's, it's, it's just human, you know, human domination and human exceptionalism is so, it's like the first thing we learn basically, you know, so it's just, just suppresses that so much. But I really, I really do believe that it's still there. It's just morphed into these strange forms. And and also, quite honestly, like I have friends or people I know who, you know, it's like, we, we, you know, we all know people like this, or it's just like, oh, I just don't want to see that. You know, if it's like a video of a the slaughterhouse or all you know these undercover videos like I just I, I can't see it I don't want to see it but it's like that's saying the fact that you actually know that it would be really hurtful to that there's empathy there it's just it's almost too much to hold and so I think for me that's when uncomfortability and comes back where it's just like can we be can we hold that tension like we care and yet we can't for a lot of people, it's like, how do I act in a way that I care? So, yeah. Well, and yet you have gone the opposite direction. You like went right in. And I just, I, I'm not even sure how to articulate this question, but like, are you okay? I mean, I, <laughs> like mo- the reason people can't go in or see, I don't want to see it. That whole thing is because like, sometimes people think that they're only capable of so much trauma and you went like, right in like where do you put it how do you go about your days 
yeah, since then I've had experiences similarly. And to be honest, my relations with other animals are partly what keeps me somewhat sane just because I think for me, like what keeps me doing my work is not only my intense heartbreak over all of this, but also just like my equally intense admiration for all the non-human animal life that, and just non-human life in general being, I mean, I, I, I spent some time just like recently just sitting at the base of this mountain and just like being with a mountain, which I know sounds strange, but it like, it felt as connected to a sense, you know, there was a sentience there that I, that I felt connected to. So I think for me, it's like having those moments of connectedness are so healing for me. Um, but I, I just, I just try to increase my capacity to hold these things just because someone, some, you know, there's so many of us who do that, you know, people in all different, whether, you know, photojournalists and undercover agents and all of those people who's like, we have, someone has to be there to hold it. I want to go back to something you said earlier. You said that many of your works involve an act of ritual. What, what do you mean by that? So I guess another example that I can give that's not, not in the book, but a somewhat recent work that's on my website are what I called bone stones, uh, relics of our wreckage. So they're these sort of <laughs> an explanation to, to say exactly what they are, but basically I, for most of us who live in big cities know that, um, chicken bones are very common to see on the sidewalks. So I began to collect them and collecting them from like a restaurant near my home too. And I basically cremated them and through this sort of this process and turned them into these stones. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I was, that was one poem that I was going to suggest I would share with your flock for the extra material. But I have, I have a poem that sort of describes the process with which I did that. So it became, so like the object itself um, is one thing, but the process I was very important to me and very difficult for me to do. And especially in the context of you actually the physical matter of an animal, like an animal body that I was manipulating in some way. So like, how do I understand that? But so something like that was very process oriented in a way. Mm-hmm. I spoke with another artist, uh, Linda Brandt, who had put together something called the monument to animals. We do not mourn. And she also spoke about how she used found bones from animals in her art. And she joined us on a flock call once where we discussed it and we sort of discussed whether there's any kind of like exploitation in that inherently or, or because it's found, we're using it to like make a point. I I mean, there's no answer. I'm just curious about your, your take on that. Yeah. Well, I think in some ways, like the poem that I wrote kind of deals with that more directly. So I, I definitely understand that for sure. You know, I felt uh, attention there myself, but for me, it was partly, I guess, number one to say, like I've thought since then, like I would never sell these works for some, you know, like they're, they're inherently a body that I've, that I've changed into a different form, but like, I would never 
add to the commercialized aspect of that. But also just thinking about these bones as what is left of them. And as more and more research and understanding has shown that memory is not just the brain is not just the locus of memory is like the body can hold a lot, hold that as well. And so it felt like in the effort of, of cremating them, you know, I mean, cremation itself, like what I did, of course, was not through the same means, but in my oven basically, and then ground them down. So that's not a, that's a violent act in and of itself. But it felt like because it was coming from a place of care that my my orientation was was always there and the form that it took like i kind of wanted it to i even say that in the poem like they the actual objects really do look like stones like they it, it, it was surprising to me what they turned out to look like and so this kind of like autonomy of matter like i was i was kind of surprised myself like that as an artist, like I really, it's so, I love working with material as opposed to, you know, in a virtual space, because there is this agency that material has. It it doesn't want to do what you want it to do oftentimes or like it. And so it was even more like, wow, this is the remains of another's body that is, that is moving and drying in this way. Like it had it, it wasn't all in my control. So don't know if it was the right thing, but I felt because I was orienting myself towards a certain kind of care and respect that I hoped that that translated in the work. Well, it's interesting because I also, everyone passes chicken bones on the street. And I think that it's like, oh, you know, for a, for a vegan, it's it, it can be really traumatic, especially if our dogs start to go towards yeah. Like, yeah, Come yeah, on, yeah, come yeah, on, yeah, let's yeah, not yeah, do yeah, that, yeah, you guys. Yeah, You're yeah, vegan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but... Now I feel like when I pass, when I'm going to think about this conversation. So I feel like that already shifted me in a way. I don't know how, but like it sort of takes a little edge of the trauma away to know that there can be this bigger framework for it. Like we're all in this together. This is not just what I'm looking at in front of me, but it's an entire individual and there are ways of respecting them and honoring them as we go about the difficult nature of our activism or our art. I I can't really articulate it, but that's the power of the arts, as you mentioned. And so I appreciate that. And speaking of which, you obviously work with a very wide variety of materials and mediums as an artist. And I'm fascinated by that does the type of subject influence these choices? Like, how do you say, that's going to be this, that's going to be a poem, that's going to be a drawing? Like, what is that like? I feel like they they feed each other very much. So it feels like it's oftentimes, it's hard to treat them separately because I, I mean, honestly, that's how a lot of artists are operating much more these days. Like, I'm a painter, sculptor, you know, or sculptor, video, all, so like this multimedia approach, I think is very much of the time. But I think for me, each function very differently, like objects have like this kind of weight and bodily presence to them. And images have this kind of like windowness, you know, that we have associated with like kind of looking into something or this space with which we can enter into through vision. And writing has this way of 
for me, I mean, I, I love poetry so much. I'm, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not a poet at all. I mean, I wrote it, but I'm not, you know, uh, trained in poetry, but I really, I just, the textures of the words and the rhythms and like, I, I, I think poetry for me, um, is just a wonderful way to use language in a new way. So in kindling, it's much more, I would say my poems are pretty direct and narrative, but since then I've been exploring kind of other forms, but I feel like, cause they each can do their own thing. And so when they're relating to each other, I think it creates a, a larger experience and, and context. I agree with that. I find it perplexing to hear you say that you're not a poet. Like I, <laughs> I, I very much see you as a poet. It's interesting to me that you said that. <laughs> I think it's just because I don't, I I'm trained as an artist and I'm not trained as a writer. So it's like, I, it's one of those things. Like, I, I don't want to say I'm from New York, even though I feel like I'm from New York, you know, like I, these people are actually poets. I'm, I'm just kind of like a, uh, <laughs> I write poetry. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, so do you have another one you could read to us that you were not going to read to the flock? Because I know you're planning on some bonus content for the flock, which is exciting. So flock, get ready. It's coming Tuesday. We're excited <laughs> about that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, maybe I'll read just a couple from a poem called Resistance. So number one. She pried apart the wooden beams sutured together by the bee's hive. They're supposed to build straight but they always build diagonally. She broke apart the hive until the bees thudded against her suited body. She brought the pieces into the house and closed the door tightly. If I don't, they will come and try to take it back. So I should have said actually beforehand that I include in the poems a lot of some of the dialogue from the, the farmers. And so anyway, the two of the stanzas there are are italicized to be uh, what I've heard them say so and then I'll, I'll read the last two actually so number two the sky hacked up thunderous roars as the barbecue began strapped and pierced a whole pig carcass twisted atop a smoldering coal bed her thigh muscles sizzled black chest cavity glistened in dark orange drip, drips her flesh ran like rain number three seven gone through the sliver of space between the gate and door or through holes we could not see, the quails found the cracks like persistent shoots that muscle through dark thresholds. Stupid quails. Stupid, marked by a lack of intelligence, lacking ordinary quickness and keenness of mind. So that poem has like, again, that kind of italicized language. And then I, at the bottom, I sort of write the definition of stupid. So it's so... For me, I one of my favorite books is called Fear of the Animal Planet, which is story like stories of animal resistance. So just the which these are very instances of of individuals in captivity resisting, but I was just picking up on that in at the farm, like these very small ways in which the animal does not do what we want the animal wow. to do. You know, so um that like the cog and the machine that does not work as we want it to. So those instances for me are so telling of obviously the, the agency, the will, the autonomy, the 
want to be not in those situations. Yeah, you make me think of pigeons, like the who escaped the food system. They were brought here by the Dutch and escaped the food system. I feel, they're like my, I love them. Yeah, so yeah, much. yeah, yeah. You know, badass. Her, the flesh ran like rain is a line that's sticking in my head. It's, it's so provocative and powerfully said. And I just wonder how important is our willingness to see animals to our thriving or even surviving, both on an individual level and on a societal level. Like, her flesh ran like rain. To me, we're not talking about Silence of the Lambs here. We're talking about what's going on all the time, 24-7. So what do you think? How important is our willingness to see animals when it comes to our ability to thrive as people mm. in our lives? You mean like like kind of going back to like how do how do we hold that discomfort or like, how do we keep? Yeah. I, yeah, I just, exactly. Sorry. I know it's a bit of a strange question, but I am wondering like so many people around us don't see the animals. Are we having some kind of deeper existence because we do, or are we just, are we just, are we just suffering because we do? Yeah. Well, for me, it's, you know, I, I've, noticed that more recently, like the, my capacity, which I don't, I don't think it's mine. It's just like what my experience of empathy is both my, my curse and my gift, you know, like in the sense of, I think empathy, if we really cultivate it is, is tragic. It's horrible to be that sense of connectedness with suffering, but it has this immense wonder and joy to it as well, you know? So like I've noticed that for me with like, for instance, like this, there's swallows that, you know, recently came migrated, you know, that's a sign of spring that the swallows are here. And I could spend hours just watching them just in the sense of like empathetically, like just wondering like, wow, how are you moving that way? You know, just this kind of like wonder. And a lot of people can't do that, you know? And, and I think that it's hard to even know what that is, but I think it's like the patience and just stillness that empathy like you just have to like wait like it's this like embodied experience that I think we don't quite know how to do and it's difficult forms and it's wonderful forms yes that's that is that is well said so I'm just curious about your own personal awakening to animals I mean you have this profound sense of them, of the animal world and of the divisions and connections between humans and non-humans. When did this start? Yeah. So it's, it's always, we always have those like Genesis stories for those of us who've been, who are passionate about this. So I, you know, I, I was lucky enough to have someone when I was in high school who actually was an artist and was vegan and oriented me towards these questions. So that was part of it. But I also, it was like a time when I was becoming much more aware of just environmental issues and also just doing yoga actually in high school and just like being much more in tune to my body in a, in a new way. So for me, those three kind of 
fed this new sense of understanding of, wow, there's so much I did not understand and, and I have been completely ignorant too. But I was also kind of at that point, my art was having much more of a kind of an activist lens to it. So I, I so it was, it was my art as well as with this newfound kind of mission of mine that it really began. And that was quite early on. So I feel I'm one of, I feel like for most of us in this field that it's like, I, this is my life and this is what I will be doing and, until I cannot. So, because it's that important and it's, especially now, you know, it, it does scare me a little bit, just how there's so, so much violence happening just within the human sphere that I think this issue can become even more marginal in some ways. So I think it's so important to keep including it. Like, no, this is important because it's so connected because of course there's so much, obviously you've written a lot about that of like so much interconnection between all these issues. So it's, this is not marginal. This is not, we'll get to it when we can. This is, this is now, you know, this is important now. Totally. Well, I'm really looking forward to you sharing some more of the poems with the flock for the flock bonus content. And I cannot believe that 50 minutes have gone by because I, I feel like I could ask you a thousand more questions. I'm officially a big fan of your work. I'm, I'm, really moved by your book and really inspired by your work. So can you tell our listeners how they can follow your work and get a copy of your book? My website is not my name at all, which makes it slightly confusing, but it's www.reembodimentproject.com. So it's reembodimentproject.com. My book is published through Lantern Publishing and Media, so you can find it on their website. And I, I do have an Instagram. I don't really use it, <laughs> but I do have one. What um, is it? It's my name. So Linnea underscore Rishke. Great. Well, we'll link to all that in the show notes as well for people who are interested in getting a copy and following you. Linnea, thank you so much for spending your morning with me today and for all that you're doing in this incredible piece of art that you've created. Yes, yeah, thank you so much. This was a pleasure. Greetings, listeners. Just a reminder that if you are a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month or $100 a year at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, if you are a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, where we have inspiring guests and great conversations about activism and animals and life in general. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out that Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And if you write to info at ourhenhouse.org, you can also set up a one-on-one conversation with me too, which I hope you do because I always have a lot of fun and I want you to also. And thanks so much for joining us in our mission to change the world for animals. Bye. Anxieties are rising. Our first story is from meetingplace.com and it's from the center of my plate column by Lisa Keefe. 
And the entry for this particular week is, yep, I went there. The there that she's referring to is Israel. And the reason that she went there was to find out more about cultivated meat technology because Israel is kind of at the center of that technology. And though this isn't exactly rising anxieties, there's a little, a little, but it's mostly, I just wanted you to hear what she had to say since none of us have gotten to taste this stuff yet, unless you've been traveling to Singapore, but you know, it's not authorized yet by the USDA and the FDA, both of which have supervision over, over cultivated meat in this country in the US anyway. And her spoiler alert in this column is it was good, truly good, all of it. She had been at some conference in Germany, the IFFA, which apparently celebrates all things animal protein and butcher related. That sounds like a blast. (laughs) It's just where I want to go on vacation, hanging out with the butchers. But she also points out that every major exhibitor there was, quote, doing double duty with its conventional and alt meat messaging. So that's, you know, a step in the right direction. But then Israel, she got invited to Israel and, and she mentions that one of the reasons Israel is really, really focusing on this technology technology is because food security is a big issue. So the government is really getting into it in a big way. And this is a quote, the cultivated beef and chicken items that I sampled in small amounts were absolutely delicious. Then she goes on to mention that the whole muscle versions, that's an attractive phrase, isn't it? Let's have some whole muscles (laughs) dinner. Well, that's what they are. But anyway, I assume she's talking about steak or things like steak. The whole muscle versions were a bit denser and chewier than their conventional meat counterparts. Well, what's wrong with being dense and chewy? But the flavor was spot on. Crazy, right? This is somebody from the meat industry. So so she points out that her belief that we were still some years away from widespread palatability of these novelties has been corrected. I'd buy them today if the price was right. Because we don't know whether the price is right yet. And and, and we don't know whether what the USDA and the FDA will do, but but this is pretty amazing. But she points out the trip reinforced another belief of mine that the conventional meat sector and the alternative meat sector are growing and will continue to grow ever closer. While many players in either business persist in treating the other as, quote, the enemy, the fact is both are aiming at the same end user. Well, that's the piece of rising anxieties, I would say is bubbling up at the end of this column because usually people who are in business competing with each other are the enemy. (laughs) That's pretty much the enemy. And of course, that explains why so many meat companies are trying to get into it. Of course, none of their products so far. I mean, I'm not saying their products are bad, but I don't think any of them compare to Beyond Meat and Impossible Burgers myself. So it's just kind of exciting, right? I want to taste this stuff. The other problem, of course, is that we don't know what they're making it with. You know, at first they were making it with fetal serum, and that is completely unacceptable and disgusting and not vegan, but also, fortunately, extremely expensive. But apparently the question of what they are cooking this stuff in is proprietary information. So I'm not sure we're going to find out. Anyway, Our next story, Tesco's plant chef advert was banned for, quote, misleading environmental claims. This is from our friends at at Plant-Based News. And Tesco is, of course, a huge supermarket chain in the UK. And this has to do with this advertising standards authority, which has seems to me has been causing an awful lot of problems and seems to be very much on the side of meat sellers because 
this ruling, which means that they can't run this ad, seems completely ridiculous. If this description of the advertisement is right, in the advert, a woman takes a bite of a Plan Chef burger. Well, that's that's Tesco's brand. While a program on the TV she's watching talks about global warming, the voiceover states, "Now that's not what Zoe likes to hear, but she's going to roll up her sleeves and do her bit." And there it is, a delicious Tesco Plant Chef burger. Well, imagine that that one of these companies getting bold enough to advertise that their products have virtues, <laughs> and one of them is that they help fight global warming or don't contribute as much to global warming as meat burgers, and that's all they said. And so this Advertising Standards Authority said, no, 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 no. There was no evidence-based comparison of the full life cycle environmental impact of the Plant Chef Burger compared with a meat burger. Therefore, Tesco's claims had not been substantiated. Well, who doesn't, like, it is pretty common knowledge by now. I mean, it's like there's a gazillion studies and there is, you know, the UN and we all know, like everybody knows that veggies are, are better than meat for the planet. I mean, it's not a secret. Seems a little extreme to me. They weren't like making very specific claims. They will fight us. They will fight and fight and fight. All right. Our last story is a little weird because it's old. It, it, this happened in, in March. Utah bill would restrict regulation of animal industries. This is from The Intercept, from the wonderful, wonderful reporter, Marina Bolotnikova. And if you're not following her, I follow her on Twitter, definitely do so because she's doing some amazing work. So she published this in March and she was very worried because this this bill had passed the state house on in Utah and was just immediately being sent to the Senate to get passed. And it was it's a really bad bill. It's very extreme. It would ban local governments from prohibiting or effectively prohibiting the operation of animal enterprise, which is defined so broadly that it could cover virtually anything. We're not just talking about factory farms. It could cover like a restaurant that sells steak or a car dealer that sells leather interior, like whatever. So it sounds, you know, it sounds very much like a ALEC bill and the American Legislative Exchange Council, but I don't know that that's the case and she doesn't say that's the case. But anyway, so this bill was was introduced by Representative Joel Ferry, who was a farmer and rancher. He asked whether it had anything to do with localities' ability to regulate CAFOs, factory farms, and he said absolutely not, which is completely ridiculous. I mean, that's what it's all about. They don't want local governments getting in the way of states, the state the state government is owned by the industry. So they don't want local government saying, no, we don't want a factory farm in our town. And they're trying to prohibit them from doing it. That's clearly what this is all about, though they do wind in a lot of other things together. And, you know, this is by far the worst bill, but there have been other bills like it. I mean, certainly in, in other areas, there there are these kinds of bills, but even within animal rights, there are preemption laws revoking cities' rights to have their own regulation on puppy mills and pet stores and banning local governments from regulating animal husbandry standards. But this is by far the most extreme one. And all right, it didn't pass. So, you know, maybe our anxieties should have arisen in in March, but we should be over that by now. But here's the thing. I happen to be reading her her Twitter feed, and it turns out 
that this guy, the one that I mentioned who introduced this bill, who's a rancher and a farmer, his name is Joel Ferry, and he introduced that bill. He wasn't successful in getting it passed. But, you know, somebody decided to make it up to him by naming him the new head of Utah's Department of Natural Resources. And this is in the middle of, of Utah dealing with a huge water crisis, Utah being overrun with factory farms, which, you know, are huge water guzzlers. Smithfield leaving Utah, probably because of water problems. And he is now the head of the Department of Natural Resources. As Marina said in her Twitter post, you can't make this stuff up. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bichler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in. Listener.